Tonight we will continue what we were looking at last week, Genesis 1. Now, I didn't anticipate to get through all of Genesis 1 last week, but I really didn't think I didn't wouldn't get that, not that far. <laughs> How do you say it? Yeah. I expected to get further into it and more or less just give you kind of a feel for how to interpret Genesis 1. That's why I gave you a good introduction in terms of the two ways of looking at it, particularly in the church. Now, obviously, the unbelieving world just totally disregards Genesis anyway, but the majority of the church tries to fit Genesis 1 into the current theories of science. The main theory is long ages. So to do that, I think, is destructive to the biblical text. In fact, just a quick reminder, there are three approaches. The liberal churches, which have abandoned Scripture altogether, they just totally capitulate. And obviously the world, they're right in tune with the world and just totally rejecting Genesis anyway. But the majority of the church try to accommodate Genesis 1 with science. If you try to accommodate Genesis 1 to current science, you're going to mess up the biblical text. So the approach that I think is the most biblical and, in fact, the one that I've been presenting, this is why we're doing this, is to show the, an alternative way of interpreting the text. This is by far the minority view. In fact, very, very few believers even are aware that you can interpret Genesis in this way. And the third way is a counterattack and in fact, what we will do is use apologetics, and I believe that Genesis by nature is an apologetic anyway. And I think when Moses wrote, God revealed to him revelation that was contrary to the Egyptian culture that the children of Israel came out of. And you can see subtle ways, for example, you find out Egyptians worship the sun, and Sun wasn't created until day four, which is a problem with modern science as well. So God is the creator of, of the sun and the moon, and they're just part of the rest of creation, not even the priority. It's kind of in the middle of the creative week. So you have little things like that that go contrary to the Egyptian cosmology and the Egyptian uh, theology, you might say. So it's a counterattack, and God is also preparing the children of Israel to live amongst the Canaanites, and I think this counters the Canaanite culture as well, which was also polytheistic. And eventually they would have Babylonian contacts. And in fact, there would be a Babylonian Genesis and a Babylonian flood. The Babylonian Genesis is called Enuma Elish, which some say, and it probably did come before the book of Genesis. So some say that Moses borrowed from it. But I think Moses received revelation concerning what God actually did. And Enuma Elish is simply man's attempt to explain the creative event. So it is a counterattack against all these other views concerning the origin of all things. Have they found any of these, any copies of any of these things? Oh, absolutely. That's why we know they, oh yeah, that's why we know they exist. Okay. Is, yeah, there's, in fact, when I gave you the Genesis flood, I showed you the Babylonian tablet of Gil Gilgamesh, and there are similar tablets for Enuma Elish. And I think that, not coincidentally, but I believe that Genesis 1 is also an apologetic 
against current science, against the common viewpoint of what science tries to teach concerning origins. And the whole thrust of last week in our introduction was to encourage us to use the biblical text. In other words, this is the inspired account in terms of how did God actually bring everything about. This is the inspired account. So if this is the inspired account and it's presented very simply, in fact, I encourage you, if you want a good interpretation of Genesis 1, sit down your 11 or 12-year-old son or daughter read it to them, and have them explain it to you, they'll give you a better explanation than those that accommodate the test to science. So we are going to do the the different approach in terms of using the biblical text as the inspired version of how things came about, and now we can look at current science and how does current science fit into it. So we're going to accommodate science to the biblical text. And like I said, the majority view is to accommodate the biblical text of science, the, the very opposite. So it's a polemic against all world views. In fact, the whole Bible is, but it starts with Genesis 1. And I mentioned also, just a quick review here, interpreting the creation. We have to interpret creation because there were no eyewitnesses and you cannot repeat it. Observational science, you can repeat experiments and come to similar conclusions or identical conclusions. When you're dealing with historical science, which is the whole area we're dealing with, and the scientists are dealing with the past as well, they interpret the past, you have to interpret it. That's a big element in dealing with historical science. You have the data, the traces of events, but you have to interpret that. And we're giving a different interpretation of the physical scientific data, fitting it into the Genesis text. What commonly is used in science is what's called methodological naturalism. What that means, this is religion, by the way. This is a philosophical approach. In other words, science is limited today. It was not in its origins, in terms of the origins of modern science. Modern science was very much what I'm sharing with you in terms of the approach. Over time, as secularists have uh, taken over science, the whole scientific endeavor, they have eliminated the supernatural. They have eliminated scripture. They've eliminated the inspired text and limited the data only to the physical realm. In other words, science only deals with the material, physical realm. That's the common approach today. I'm giving a different view of science And I mentioned last time I do a little, well, about an hour and a half talk on the biblical foundation for science that gives this approach in more detail. This is what's practiced today. So scientists, theologians that deal with the scientific issues, they impose naturalistic theory. Naturalism is a philosophy, a worldview, that all there is is the natural realm. There's no spiritual realm. There's no God, etc., They impose a naturalistic theory if they deal with Genesis at all. They impose it on the text, and they attempt to harmonize the text with what we know in terms of science. And if you take it to its ultimate end, then you eliminate all miracles, and you eliminate God, ultimately. That's methodological naturalism. In other words, this is the method by which they interpret the material, physical data. 
There's a different approach that is not well known in the church, very minority. This is a minority view. You start with a biblical worldview. So you start with scripture, a biblical worldview. You start with scripture, begin with uh, the text. And we're beginning with Genesis 1. Now that you understand the text and you do the best that you can to interpret the text, that doesn't mean that we are infallible and don't make mistakes and may not have the total picture, but at least that's the starting point, and that is the inspired version. We may not understand it all, but at least we make an attempt to understand it the best we can. And then once we understand the biblical text, now we avoid evolutionary theory because that's the current naturalistic approach. And instead, we interpret the physical data in light of the revelation, in light of what God has said in his word. So that's the approach that I'm doing Genesis 1 with. So when I speak of Genesis 1 in science, I'm expounding the biblical text, and then we're looking at what does the text say in terms of how we can understand the physical world. And we started that last week and barely got through day one. I was hoping to get through like day five or six, but well, expanding it, uh, I'll be able to get into day six tonight. So that's how we're going to do it. And just a brief outline of the book of Genesis, at least first 11 chapters, I call it primeval history. And I stress history. In other words, these things took place just as real, just as much as... Abraham Lincoln, for example, or the discovery of America. The events that are recorded in the early chapters of Genesis are historical. This is the record. No one was there to observe it, but these are things that God revealed, particularly Genesis to Moses. So the first that we have is history of creation. And I use history again just to stress the idea. That's essentially Genesis 1, and by the way, the verses are not inspired. It would probably better be better if chapter 1 ended in chapter 2, verse 3, just because it all goes together. That's the seventh day, but we'll stick with the biblical text here rather than confuse everybody, right? Well, it starts out, we looked at last time, the creation of the universe. We spent a good portion there after I gave you that introduction, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, it's a summary statement, I believe, verse 1, that summarizes all that Moses is going to deal with in the rest of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. So this, I mentioned, is every much a scientific statement as anything that you would find in any chemistry or physics or biology book. It's not stated in technical language, and it's not stated in a formula form, but it's a statement of fact, just as any statement you would find in a text. And I talked a little bit about that last time. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. It's very comprehensive. It's, it's a huge statement, huge implications there. And we looked at, we started to look at six days of creation, and we looked at day one where God creates light. One thing I didn't mention Last time, I should have mentioned last time that when it says the heavens and the earth, that's a very common idiom is a good word. I'm thinking of a different word. Figure of speech, you might say. It's a very common device that we use. In fact, we use them all the time ourselves. This figure of speech, it's called a merism. We say, I worked day and night. Does that mean I worked 24 hours? Not necessarily. It means that I really put a lot of effort into this 
project. You know, I work day and night on it. You give the extent or the extremes from one end to the other end. That's a merism. There's no word in the Hebrew text for universe. So when it says the heavens and the earth, that that is closest to me and that that is the most distant. In other words, everything in between as well. So this is the Hebrew way of saying universe, basically. So in the beginning, God created the universe. In other words, everything in the material realm, Hebrew marriage. So let's take a quick review of day one. And this is, this is just a summary of what we talked about. We said one of the most important things that we have in one one is the creator creation distinction. And it's only the Bible that presents the real God in this way. All the gods of the Old Testament and even gods today and man's conception of God, there's a intermingling or a union between the creation and the creator. There's not a distinction. It's only the, the biblical God that descri- is described in that way. We also talked about this is an absolute beginning. So this is the beginning of time. I mentioned last time, Colossians says that God created all things. In fact, Colossians 1 speaks of Jesus creating all things, visible and invisible. And in the text, in Genesis 1, we have things visible and invisible. In the beginning is not something that you can see. In other words, it's a time frame. So God initiates a time frame right off the bat. He deals with time. And that's one of the reasons that statement is a scientific statement. It deals with time, it deals with matter, deals with processes, and it deals with other elements as well. So we have time and we have absolute beginning. I believe time is part of the created realm. When we speak of eternity, it's not just endless time. I think it's a totally different existence, you might say. I think time has a beginning and it has an end. All right? I can't prove that, but... That seems to be what the text indicates. So we have an absolute beginning, no Big Bang. And I talked a little bit about that. We talked about the means of creation. There's nothing natural about God creating. He speaks things into existence. And by speaking, we also said we have the origin of language. God speaking. There's a a language, there's a communication that transcends human language. Human language comes from God, and I gave you a biblical foundation for language, and that tells us that science itself comes from God as well. We have the origin of science and the result of science technology. So we talked a little bit about that last week. Origin of physics, the origin of all things. So we include all of the sciences, but very specifically, we have things relating, and the earth was without form. So you have a mass of matter, and it has. To, it seems to be together in some way, probably spherical. So you have gravity, you have physics, and there's darkness. There's water, so you have chemistry, first element that's mentioned. And then on day one, you have optics, the origin of optics, which is a branch of physics. So this is where you begin your study in any of these sciences. In fact, every science that we have, you should go back to Genesis because it lays the foundation for every every science that we have. And I didn't mention, because I was trying to get through this quickly last time, but when we talk about light, that's day one. This is more than a review. This is an addition to day one. When it says God created light, we have the most basic of all energy is light itself. 
And I don't know if I mentioned last time, but this goes contrary to everything that evolution talks about. Light comes after the Big Bang. So the Big Bang, and then as a result of the Bang, you have light. But God creates light before that. And when we get to day four, we're going to find out that light comes even before the sun. How does that happen? That's a big major problem for evolutionary thinking and anyone that wants to accommodate the text. But we have the most basic energy of all. So you have energy. God creates energy. And it's a particular energy that we'll talk about in a moment. And if you want some physical parameters here, we have the speed of light, which is a constant. And more than likely, on day two, God did some things that exceeded the speed of light. Just the magnitude of the universe seems to indicate that. that. On day two, I'll get to that. I'll talk some more about that. It appears that when God stretched out the universe, we'll talk about that, in order to accomplish that, it had to have exceeded the speed of light just because of the immensity of what we can observe in the known universe today. So, and I mentioned, constants are only constants as long as God makes them constant. And I told you also, from this viewpoint of science, the constants, the laws of science, in fact, we're going to see that in Genesis 1, have not always been constants. In fact, uh, they have not always existed. Current science has the idea that constants are constants. They're eternal. Well, if they're eternal, then you can't have a creation. If you have a creation, then you can't have constants that are constant. You have to have a beginning for these constants. And there's evidence from... Obviously, the text itself, that the fall introduced changes to the material realm, and the Genesis flood introduced other changes as well. And I think I mentioned some of them when we talked about the Genesis flood. Today, the speed of light is measured at 186,282.397, and probably some more decimal points, miles per second. An enormous number uh, that's hard to conceive of. It's a finite number, as is all of the creation. As a Others, well, no one has observed it, but uh, creationists believe that there may have been some changes at the Genesis flood of some things like the speed of light. And I mentioned a lot of constants could have changed. Also, it's relative you are. There's part of Russ Humphrey's theory that talks about possible variations in the speed of light. Now, what is this light? Probably the most common viewpoint, because there's no sun, because there's no sun, what might you expect? Well, God is. That's the common viewpoint, is since there's no sun, then more than likely somehow God is emanating his own light. So God's light. And that's a common interpretation. Now, we don't know. I mean, we weren't there, and that's a possibility, but I prefer that this is physical light, because everything else he's dealing with is the natural realm. Yes, God is light, and obviously light comes from him. Everything comes from him. Matter comes from him, obviously, because he's the creator. But I think what God is laying out in Genesis 1 is the physical material realm, the universe. So I think it's physical light. So he said a physical, some type of physical light. Well, he created it. Yeah, I mean, it, was, it said, let there be light, and so there was light. Yeah. Like, let there be earth. Well, it's the first earth. creative act that's recorded on day one. In other words, he created light, and you don't have to have the sun to have light. But it's not the... Exactly, but it's, it's not the only light. It's light. If you think about it, you can probably come up with 
other sources of light other than the sun? Can you think of it? Flashlights. <laughs> there you go. Electricity produces light. All right, there was one. Can you think of another one? Sparks. Fire. Ultraviolet. Well, that's, well, that's a form of light. That's a spectrum. That's, yeah, and there's a spectrum. We'll talk about that in a moment. Nuclear reaction brings about light. Chemical reactions can produce light. You tell somebody that. Yeah. yeah. How do you get it out of Right. Well, but the point I'm making is the argument is because you don't have sun, how can you have light? Well, there's other sources of light. All right. But I believe that uh, what we have is physical light. And on day one, and again, you know, I'm basing this mainly on what the text tells me. And I can't prove many of these things, but it seems to make sense that we have the whole spectrum. What we can see is called visible light, but there's an entire electromagnetic spectrum of light, you might say, that we cannot see. And this is just a, out of physics book, basically, that I downloaded from the web. Light, as we understand it today, this is the spectrum, this little part in there. That's the light spectrum, and then it's expanded so you can see the different colors on it. But there's cosmic rays, which are part of this electromagnetic spectrum. There are gamma rays, x-rays, ultraviolet light. Then on the other side of the spectrum, infrared light. Microwaves, radar are part of the spectrum. So I, I believe that God created the entire electromagnetic spectrum on day one. Make sense? There are radio waves, if you will, that are part of the spectrum. Broadcast band, that's television and FM. The FM stations are further down. The AM are more where it says radio there. I believe on day one he created the entire spectrum. Sources of light, we talked about that. Chemical reactions, thermal reactions, nuclear reactions, electrical activity, and also the sun. But the sun's not created till later. So I think the text is telling me there's light already. It's not the sunlight. But, and in fact, when you get to day four, we're going to find out that it doesn't use the word for, it doesn't use the word sun. It uses the word light bearers, referring to the sun. In other words, the sun bears light. And the sun is created in order, we'll see later, well, to measure, but also it says for signs and for seasons, so it, it serves many other purposes as well. Now, the main function is to give light and heat, etc. So that's light on day one. So we have optics, and we also talked about the emphasis in the text is God working, so there's no natural processes, no naturalism, in Genesis 1, we also said immediacy of fulfillment. So this eliminates progressive creationism, which is very common amongst the church, that God interjects creative acts over long periods of time. So there might be millions of years, and then God interjects a creative act, and then another long period of time, and then he interjects other creative acts. That's probably the most popular idea and most popular way of interpreting Genesis 1, progressive creationism. But what it does, it's imposing science on the biblical text, and particularly long ages, but other issues as well. We also have a definition for day, and we'll talk more about that next week, definition of day. And you might even say, God also not only begins time, 
but he has set up a time frame already before we can measure that time frame using the sun. Because we have day, we have one day. So we already have a time frame set up before the sun, which obviously contradicts scientific ideas and other issues as well. And then finally, this implies a relatively young Earth, which that's the topic of next. So that's day one. Let's take a look at day two. And we spent more time on day one, in fact, almost the whole time last time, after our introduction. So we'll have to go through the other six days more quickly. Verse six, then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. That seems to tell me that in verse two, when it says, and the earth was formless and void, it didn't have shape, it didn't have form, it almost implies that there's no continents, you might say. No, like it's a ball of water, like gravity. That's the sense there, particularly in light of uh, day two as well. A mass of water. There's darkness, uh, verse two, formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the, the deep. That's a word that's used for oceans, very deep waters. And that may be all that there is in verse 2 here. This is how God begins the whole process. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. It doesn't talk about land or, or other elements other than H2O. It's not till day 3 that we have landmass. We'll get there. But anyway, so he says, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. So all there is is water. And there's a separation. Now, what does this mean? And what is he talking about here? The Hebrew word, since Pat likes Hebrew words here, we have rakia. Hebrew word rakia. And it basically means spread out thinness. And people like Russ Humphreys looking at the biblical text and in context indicate that perhaps space is not empty, but it's it's like a fabric. It's spread out. All of the images that are used, in fact, there are like 29 or 30 descriptions in Isaiah, in the Psalms of God spreading out the heavens. And in some cases, like a garment. In other words, there's, there's like fabric. It ha- has some qualities of fabric. Now, you, yep, you don't want to... Take that too far, but there seems to be something other than just emptiness to space, spread out thinness. Now, there's a couple of views on that, whether it refers to the atmosphere or to space. And I believe that what we have is God spreading out space, essentially. And it doesn't tell us. We don't know. It's possible that along with the spreading out of the waters, in between, he might be converting... H2O into many other elements that are spread out throughout this spreading out. That's a possibility. Or it's also possible that there's this fabric or emptiness is maybe a good way of describing it, but there's a separating of waters. Now, there's two basic views. The more common view is that he's separating the oceans from the atmosphere. And that's probably the most popular view. But It seems to be bigger than that, because you have today, you have space, 
And more than likely, and this is Russ Humphrey's view, he thinks that if we could observe the edge of the universe, we would see a layer, you might say, of water. And the separating of the waters is basically the waters on planet Earth and waters that would be at the furthest extent of the universe. Now, I believe that the universe is finite. It's not eternal. It's not infinite. It's finite. And it has an edge or an end. And Humphreys believes that we will perhaps someday discover that there's waters out there. And what they do, we don't know. But oceans, uh, separation between the oceans and the edge of the universe. Again, uh, this is something that the text seems to indicate and science is always catching up with what the Bible teaches. And this is something that we still don't know because we've never observed the end or the edge of the universe. The further we look out, the more we are able to see something out there. So I prefer the, the second view. And probably not. No, 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 I think there's an end and there's a material, physical reality. But it has to because of the formula. Well, when we observe, we can, we can see in all directions mm -hmm. galaxies, and that's all you can observe. You can't. Right, you can't. Find yeah. it. So I'm going to use this chart throughout. So we can start looking at this chart. We can compare creation in over six days with evolutionary theory. And this is the common evolutionary sequence of things that came about. We have a Big Bang, and then we have light. So already we have a contradiction. In fact, there's no Big Bang. We have a creation of a full-blown universe and light on day one. And by the way, we have a description of that probably in this separating out. In other words, outside of the earth, you have on day one light and you, all you have is this ball of water or the earth. It's called Eretz. It's called the earth. And then on day two, we have this spreading out. And I think on day two, God creates the universe or the rest of what we can observe outside of planet Earth. Does that make sense? Or space, you call it outer space. And perhaps with an edge that has water, a layer of water. And the waters are separated. Oceans don't come about until after the creation of stars, galaxies, plants, and Earth in the evolutionary scheme. And already we have oceans. So that's part of day two. We have stretching out of space. We have perhaps material spread in space. That's from the text possibility or something about this space that is not just emptiness. And we have a separation of water mass from planet Earth, probably beyond. And you might say this is the beginning of oceanography. In fact, you can go all the way to verse 2 for the origin of oceanography. So if you want to study oceanography, you start with at least day 2, if not even before that. And you start, obviously, with God is creating it. God's the one that separates these waters. And you also have the origin of astrophysics, because now you have space, and it begins on day 2. So this is how I harmonize science with the biblical text. And obviously, in science, you have no creation even though the first law of thermodynamics implies a creative act. In other words, you have to have a beginning. It doesn't state it, but it implies it. This is the way you harmonize science with Genesis. So that's day two. Another thing I should comment on, this separating. I mentioned it last time, 
God is making distinctions. Remember, he made distinctions between day and night. And what he's doing is he's setting up this whole idea of categories and language. He's further doing it on day two, where now we have waters that are separated. So we have distinctions being made. Verse 7, God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above above the expanse. And then we have, again, that little phrase, the immediacy of fulfillment, and it was so. Not over billions of years, but it was so. All of space, it appears, all of the universe was created instantaneously, basically, on day two. And I gave you the reason. God could have said, let there be a universe with man, and there would be a universe with man. But he creates on six days, because we find out later on, this is the pattern for the work week. I mentioned that last time. So again, we have the immediacy of fulfillment and God called. We have the naming, the naming. Do you remember the two elements of the naming motif in Scripture? Number one, God called the expanse heaven. So he names the heavens. So that kind of defines it. The heavens are what commonly in Scripture we look at above the earth. In some cases, it includes the atmosphere, and sometimes it's referring to the atmosphere. In fact, in Genesis 1, when it talks about the creation of birds, they're flying in the heavens, so that's part of the heavens. But it also, on day 4, he creates the, the stars that are in the heavens, so it goes beyond the atmosphere. So we're talking about outer space here. What's the naming motif? Number 1. Number one, high intelligence that is able to recognize characteristics. Obviously, God is omniscient, and he's the creator, so he knows it. But this is important because he gives man that task. Man is given a mind that can do science, a mind that can set up categories. Man sets up categories. He can recognize the characteristics of these different categories. He names the animals. Remember the second naming part of it? mentioned it last time. Nope. Just talking about naming, the naming motif or the naming idea has two concepts. The ability to understand and recognize different characteristics. Secondly, sovereignty over. So it's a an expression, God is sovereign over the universe, over the heavens. He's sovereign. And in Genesis 1, God is going to give dominion to man. He's going to give him delegated sovereignty over the creation at least planet Earth. And that's recognized when he names the animals. All right? So that's day two. And on day three, then God said, let the waters below the heavens, those are the ocean waters, be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And then you have immediacy and it was so. Not over millions of years again. In fact, it's repeated often and it was so. Or he repeats the creative fiat, like he says, let there be light, and there was light. So now we have these waters below the heavens, so that's planet Earth, be gathered into one place, and the dry land appeared. Now there's different ways of perhaps understanding this materially or scientifically. It's possible that maybe there were continents or land masses below the waters, and now God brings them to the surface, now they appear. Now you can see them. Or maybe God now creates land masses and other elements other than H2O. And now that they're created, now you can see them. All right. Two ideas, two ways of perhaps understanding that. And some 
people, particularly creationists, believe that the text seems to indicate, because it doesn't talk about different continents, that maybe perhaps there was only one continent. And at the flood, remember the flood theory that I gave you when we talked about the flood? It's perhaps at the flood that the Atlantic Ocean was split apart. Remember we talked about tectonic movements, and there's physical evidence of that. The Mid-Atlantic Ridge, remember we talked about that. Well, the Mid-Atlantic Ridge would have been this breaking up here so that you have the separating of continents, and some creationists call Pangaea, but even secularists have theories like that. And the reason it fits this way is it almost fits like Africa would fit here and South America would fit here, and obviously North America and then the others are a little bit more complicated to put together. So one landmass possible. So we have either the transformation of H2O, where God transforms those elements into all of the other elements that we have today, periodic table. So we already have chemistry, and maybe now you have the periodic table on day three. Or we have pre-existing land underneath the waters. So after the flood, or post-flood, we have continental sprint. And I gave you some of that idea when we talked about this. Instead of continental drift, millimeters at a time, during the flood event, we have sprint where Probably yeah, rapid movements. Roughly that year, it moved pretty fast. Well, it, probably within days, we within have days, movements of the entire continent. Sometime in that year. Such that today we have North America, for example. So that's part of day three, but we have two parts to day three. Beginning in verse 11, then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation. And then we have three things here. Plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit. And here's a key word, after their kind. But let's take a look at these three terms real quickly because we don't have a lot of time. But the first word, vegetation, probably vegetation as a general category. General vegetation. Deseh is the Hebrew word. And probably, it seems to me it makes more sense that now we have two categories. Two very broad categories. So what we already have are categories that God has already recognized or designated. We're already beginning to have a category system for biology, or botany, you might say more specific. And esheb, herbage in general, like grasses and grains and small shrubs and that sort of thing. And then more specifically, fruit trees, which uh, the word is ets, fruit trees. And I'm putting these in just for Pat, because she's the only one that likes Hebrew. (laughs) You like it, I can tell. Yeah, I know. That's why I put them up there for you. (laughs) But you can take it as three categories. Some some commentators do. It seems more likely that he's talking about botany in general. In other words, we have botany in general, and then we too have two major categories. And then he talks about within those two categories, kinds. And there's all the variety of kinds within plant life. And this is before the science of genetics. So before people knew about genetics, we already have a statement concerning genetics in Genesis chapter 1. Kinds are a genetic category. Now, it's broader than species. I used the example, I don't remember, when we were talking about creation, I think. When God created, he created animals after their kind. We'll see that later on in the text. Same word, Hebrew word is min, 
and after their kind has the idea of a broader category than species. And I use the example of dog kind or horse kind or cat kind because you have you can have intermarriage within them. Now some of them are so distant that it's more difficult than others, but they're still within the kind. We're further away from the Genesis flood. And Sarfati, the fellow that was here this last weekend, I think he's probably gone by now, he calls what God has done here, God's self-replicating solar-powered food factories, plant life, food factories. And the self-replicating is very important because everything man makes is not self-replicating. When God creates, he creates very sophisticated life. So we have the beginning of life on day three after the creation of continents. So we have lots of contradictions with current theory. This is why we don't want to take the approach of imposing theory on it because it just doesn't harmonize. You have vegetation on earth, not in a primordial soup, not in oceans. That's evolutionary thinking. So is kelp not considered a... Yeah, it would be considered vegetation, but it's there's vegetation that exists in water as well. Okay. But it's created on the land. In other words, that's what the text is telling us is that... Oh, okay. It's just yeah, that plant life is on the land, mm-hmm. not in the oceans. And what I'm doing is just contrasting the evolutionary idea. And uh, one photosynthesis is one of the most important chemical reactions on Earth because all food is produced that way. This is the bottom of the food chain. This is the foundation of the food chain is photosynthesis. And God creates plants that can, uh, can do this. We cannot reproduce that. Scientists cannot produce, have not been able to produce a process of photosynthesis. We can utilize sun power, but it does not generate food like plants do. God does that on day three. And we have vegetation before the sun. This is a major problem for those that hold to progressive creationism because they say, how can you have plant life without a major source of life like the sun? Well, plants can survive. And besides, there's already light. Not the sun, but there's light. So plants can survive. So the text is consistent, and you can come up with scientific explanations better than trying to go the other way, imposing science. So we have another contradiction with naturalistic theory. You also have fruit trees before animal life. And in biology, you have a single cell, single-celled animals, and somewhere along the line you have plant life. But animals come first in evolution. That's a problem for evolution. Yep. You almost have them simultaneous. There's the Hebrew word, Pat. Min. Min, M-I-N. Min. Is that for animals? This is for plants. Fruit trees. No. Min is kinds. Yeah, but... <laughs> okay. That's speaking right now. Okay, but it can be the same word is going to occur later on when it talks about animals after their men after their kind after their old kind. Yes. In this text, you have a third of them of all of the occurrences. You have a large number also in the Genesis account of the animals that came on the ark after their kind. Same word, men. So you have ten out of the thirty-three times that occurs in the Old Testament in Genesis 1. And the meaning of it is it specifies limits or boundaries for variation. In other words, they don't cross these boundaries. 
plants after their kind. This is way ahead of biology. And it's contradictory to evolutionary theory because evolutionary theory, you have one kind evolving into another kind. And the meaning here is that you have limits to it. They reproduce after their kind and they don't go beyond those boundaries. So we have it spelled out in Genesis 1. And in fact, what we have is the permanence of the kind, the limits. And we have something of that stated in 1 Corinthians 15, 39, different kinds. There's different kinds of, of life. So that's day three. We have the origin of geophysics and the origin of probably tectonics, probably, probably dormant until the flood, but at least you have geophysics. So if you want to study geophysics, you start with Genesis, and you start with Genesis day three. Secondly, you have, obviously, very clearly, the origin of botany, and specifically genetics originates on Earth, not in water, not in primordial, so-called primordial soup. You see how it's a polemic? It's a polemic against current science. You can't harmonize the two. You have to accept one or the other. If you accept science and impose it, you're going to destroy the, the biblical text. You're going to undermine the biblical text. I prefer to accept the inspired version, and now I can work on fitting my science into the inspired text. See what we're doing here? Different interpretation. Different interpretation of the physical data a good and consistent interpretation of the biblical data. In other words, maintain a proper hermeneutic. You also have the origin of food and also oxygen factories. Plants are oxygen factories. Animals require oxygen, and you have to have a source. Plants are the source, so God builds that first. Well, the end of the water has, I mean, it had to come no, you, you know, try breathing water. No, I, no, I know, but it had, it had to be there. But, uh, you know, so he had to create it separate. Separate. Yep. Okay, so you have these from the day one. So I think it's going on. Place so time did the sun mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah, I think you can come to that conclusion from okay. from the sequence here. Yeah, you can have photosynthesis. Yeah, if you have other light sources. That's what I mean. Got other light sources can give you the same. Yeah, in fact, uh, don't you have sometimes... Like growing stuff indoors. Yeah, growing things in a... Right, yeah, exactly. And, you know, what's a day? I mean, we're going to have shortly, two days, we're going to have animal life. So, And by the way, what God is creating here, he didn't create seeds. And he didn't create eggs, by the way. So the chicken, whether the chicken or the egg, no. <laughs> He created chickens, not eggs. <laughs> That's evolutionary thinking. Anyway, we have the origin of food and oxygen factories. We have vegetation before sunlight. We've talked about that. Fruit trees before animals, before bees to pollinate. And we have the fixity or the boundaries of the kinds. And everything we observe today in genetics points in this direction in spite of the theory of evolution. In fact, genetics totally destroys the theory of evolution, by the way. It's day three. These are the scientific implications, at least some of them. You could come up with others, but these are kind of the big ones, the main ones that I've come up with. So we have day four, celestial bodies, 14 through 19. 
And in that, it says, verse 14, then God said, let there be lights. And a better translation would be light bearers. It doesn't say sun, light bearers. In other words, a new source of light, a major source of light now that is going to shine, obviously. So let there be lights in the expanse. Where's the expanse? Not the atmosphere now. The expanse is even beyond the atmosphere. It's, it's, it's in space beyond. Yeah. Okay. So let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate. Here we have distinctions again. To separate the day from the night and let them. So now we have a purpose for day and night or a new way of reckoning day and night so we can recognize it. Day and night already existed, day one. There was evening, there was morning, one day. It was just no starlight. Mm -hmm. No starlight yet. Let them be for signs. And we use the sun and the moon for navigation, for, for time, you know, those sort of things, for seasons, for days and years. This is how we measure time now. Now we have a way of measuring time. There's another way to measure. Yeah. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. There's the source of light. Here's the source of warmth now. And again, you have the immediacy. It was so. Not after millions of years. It didn't take millions of years to create the sun or any of the stars. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light. Now, this is reflective light. So it's stated this way. The lesser light to govern the night. And by the way, he made the stars also. <laughs> so we have the solar system, particularly the sun and the moon and everything associated with it, and the stars also kind of as an afterthought. So we have uh, our sun is a white star, diameter 8,065,000 miles, 109 times the size of the Earth or the diameter of the Earth, 93 million miles away from planet Earth. <laughs> These are things that we can observe and look at, and God does this instantaneously, puts the sun up there. It's a nuclear power plant, essentially. The Earth's power, and this is just what we derive from the sun. So we have tremendous energy uh, radiated out from the sun, and just planet Earth only gets 1.73 times 10 to the 17 watts. Yeah. <laughs> And it takes light, remember we gave you the speed of light, light, eight uh, minutes and 20 seconds to get from the sun to planet Earth. So if light moves 186,000 something, uh, that tells us the sun is quite a ways from us. And in fact, it's in the right place. If it were any closer, there would not be the possibility of light. If it was any, any further away, same thing, except in one case, everything would burn up. In the other case, everything would freeze up. So, light from the sun? Light takes eight minutes and 20 seconds. Oh, a light year. That's the distance that it takes light to travel over a year. That is way out there. That's where some of the galaxies are. Light years away. The sun is only eight minutes and 20 seconds away in terms of... That's all Yeah. Yep. And it orbits the galaxy every 240 million years. So it hasn't gone around the galaxy yet. <laughs> now this is based on current measurements, obviously. 
Okay. Oh, here we have another contradiction. We have the Earth before stars and galaxies. Yeah, totally out of sequence. We have a lesser light, primarily basalt, that's volcanic, the surface at least. We don't know too much about the interior, but it's a basalt surface. It's been observed. Samples have been brought back. Basalt, volcanic. The origin of the moon is a real problem for evolutionists. How does it come about? In fact, all moons are a problem for evolution. One theory is that uh, something collided with Earth and broke off a portion of it, and now we had the moon. The Comets and stars. Yep. It's receding from the Earth one and a half inches a year. So be careful. Yeah, before, before too. Yeah, before too long, we won't have any tides. Which? What'd you say, Connie? Climate change. Climate change. Which also implies at this rate, it could not have been set there for millions and millions of years because it would be basically face-to-face with the Earth. So we're talking about a young Earth. Why is it receding? We don't know. That's just the way it is. It's very important for tides and oceans. In fact, one of the main functions, it produces the tides. The tides cleanse the oceans. Otherwise, you would have pockets that would accumulate. So if you want to study the moon, you start with day four. And that little phrase in the Hebrew text, where is it? Verse 16, the English translators insert he made the stars also. But in the Hebrew text, it's only stars also. In other words, it's almost like what he's saying. Oh, by the way. Oh, by the way. I mean, it was no big deal. Or kind of as a sidelight, you know, you're kind of curious. Yeah, as a sidelight, you made the stars also. Because it's easy. No big deal. Incidentally, stars also. Only since you were wondering. (laughs) Only because you were wondering where the stars come from. Here it is. Stars also. Again, what did we say at the beginning? The priority is what? The priority is Earth. Salvation comes on planet Earth. Christ came to Earth. He didn't come to Pluto. He didn't go to Pluto. He came to Earth. He died on a cross on planet Earth. He created mankind on planet Earth. That's a priority. So, stars also, only because you were wondering. As an afterthought, the stars also. So, have heavenly bodies on day four, contradicting evolutionary theory. There's great variety of them, even though they're not described in Genesis. But the Bible talks about a great variety of stars. If you want a verse, 1 Corinthians 15. I don't know if I have it. Yeah, I do have it here on the slide. Uh, the Bible does say that they are numberless. We can't count them. Can anyone count to 10 to the 22 power? That'd be several lifetimes. That's what makes them numberless. And this is just what we can observe so far. 10 to the 22 power. So the universe, 46 billion light years in radius. There's your light years. Estimate the observable. That's just what we observe. So it's bigger than that. And by the way, that 10 to the 22, scientists estimate that there's 100 billion stars in the Milky Way. 100 billion stars. Milky Way is an average galaxy, and they estimate that there are 100 
billion galaxies that are observable in the universe. So you multiply those two numbers together, as our sister is doing, you come up with 10 to the 22. And God's named them all, by the way. So stars also. We're impressed, but God says, ah, stars also. Great variety. 1 Corinthians 14, 41, there is one glory of the sun. The sun has a glory that's different. Another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. In other words, there's varieties of stars. And by the way, our sun is classified as a white star. It's sometimes referred to as a yellow star, but it's a white star. If it were a yellow star, everything that you saw, this table would be yellow instead of white. It reflects white light. And then the text says for, let's say, for star, differ from star in glory. So you have different stars. And there's only one word for star in the Greek New Testament. And sometimes that word refers to other things than what we would call other suns or other stars. It can refer to a comet. It can refer, in fact, in the book of Revelation, it appears that it refers to an asteroid that strikes the earth in uh, chapter chapter 8, one of the trumpet judgments. So the word astere, which is the Greek word, can refer to any heavenly body, comet, asteroid, planet, or star. And it says uh, there's different glory. In other words, there's, there's a variety of them, not only brightness. And scientists have observed there's red giants, there's super giants, there's white stars like our sun, there's yellow stars, there's dwarfs, there's variable stars, pulsars, binaries, planetary, planetary nebulae, neutron stars, and that's only part of the list. Paul is way ahead of astrophysics in 1 Corinthians 15, or should I say the Holy Spirit, because he's the creator. These are things that we discover and we can observe that are already stated by, by the Bible. So our little chart here, contrasting these two, we have the waters are separated, or the oceans, as we talked about. Earth is priority, and what I'm talking about is continents. Maybe I should make that more specific. Evolutionists put Earth after other planets. It's only one of other planets. And uh, stars are very early in the evolutionary time frame. We have the first life, first cell, you might say, coming out of the oceans in the evolutionary scheme, but out of the land in the biblical. And basically, when we get to the bottom, you're just going to have a bowl of spaghetti here. And that's why I'm kind of visually showing it to you that there. You can't harmonize the two. Don't even try. If you do, you're going to destroy the biblical text. Why? Why? So that when you look up there, you're going to worship God. The heavens declare the glory of God. If the universe is so huge, just think of what God is. If it, so is God. God is beyond what we can conceive. It makes us feel insignificant. If the sun... thinks everything of us. Absolutely. If the sun has energy that we cannot even conceive, think about a hundred billion suns in the Milky Way, and then think of a hundred billion Milky Ways. God is omnipotent. In other words, all of that energy came from him. It's created. He's greater than all of that. That's why he, I think he gave us the universe so that we would... Uh, he's eternal. That's what the Bible, the Bible teaches. He's eternal. He's uncreated. That's that creator-creation distinction. Creation is finite. God is infinite. We have a magnificent God. 
and the heavens declare that so that we worship him and not worship the stars or the sun as the Egyptians did. You know those are hard work. And mm-hmm. then the further you get away, you then see right. somebody's what we so that is no. Why not? No, because he's outside of the creation. You can't oh, Yeah, you you, you can't you mix him. No, you don't want to mix God with the creation. That's pantheism. In other words, pantheism is God is all and all is God, or everything is God and God is everything. That's pantheism. That's not the Bible. God is distinct and separate and greater than the creation. So we have light before stars on day four, contrary to the evolutionary thinking. Earth before the stars and galaxies. We have the origin of stars, no pre-existing stars. This is a problem because star formation requires stars, according to astrophysics. This is a puzzle for astrophysics. In order to create a star, you have to have a gravitational source to pull the material or to condense the material to pull it together. So there's no pre-existing stars. We have the origin of stars. Creative act. And it's an afterthought. Heavenly bodies on day four. Contradictory to evolutionary theory, we have the origin of astronomy. Day five, creatures. Verses 20 through 23, day five. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures. Let the birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. There you go again. The rakia, here's the atmosphere. Flying creatures, swarming creatures are created on day five. Nefesh, it occurs over 730 times, and it's a particular kind of animal. Insects probably don't have nefesh. Man has nefesh. It's the most important part of life, whatever that is. Well, it's, it's describing that most important part. The meaning of it seems to indicate something relating to life and a living being. And sometimes it's translated living being. It can mean the idea of soul, but it has more than just that idea. Animals don't have soul, but they have nefesh. In other words, they don't have soul. They don't have soul in the New Testament sense. And they are distinct. This is what makes these animals distinct from plants. And we could talk some more about that, but we don't have time. Here's just some contradictions. We have aquatic life and flying creatures at the same time. That's out of evolutionary sequence. We also have birds before reptiles. That's totally out of sequence. You have to have reptiles first because they believe birds are evolutionary after reptiles or from reptiles. So you can't harmonize it. You also, here's a problem for evolution. You have four different flying creatures. Can you name four distinct different flying creatures? So you have to have the evolution of of flight four times. One is a problem. Evolutionists don't have an explanation how creatures develop flight. You have to have a fully formed wing before it's useful. So how do you fly? I mean, you keep jumping, you keep crashing, right? (laughs) Can you name the four different flying creatures. You got insects. Birds, obviously. No, no, they're just jumping. They're not flying, no flying swords. Bats, mammals. Yep. You have birds, you have mammals, you have bats, reptiles. Now, none of them are living, but uh, we have dinosaurs that, uh, all right, and then you have the insects. This is a major problem. Just one evolutionary path for flying 
is baffling to the evolutionists, much less four of them. And God said, I'm going to throw a monkey wrench in here. I'm going to give you four different flying creatures. There's also a focus on dinosaurs. We had more time. We could talk about that. Day five, we have a distinction of plant and animal life. They didn't evolve one from the other. There's a distinction in them. They're different. The nephesh indicates that. Aquatic and flying creatures at the same time. I mentioned that on the other slide. Birds before reptiles. Dinosaurs, or if you want to study dinosaurs, here's you start, day four. And again, we have the fixity of kinds. They reproduce after their kinds. Same word, men. So, yes. So, just lines? No. Horrible. Probably all of them. It's not clear. And if you want to study the whole area of zoology, you go to day five. Day six, we're going to make it. We have mammals and reptiles on the same day. Uh oh. Verse 24, then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind again. So we have the fixity of kinds. Men is the word. Cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so, if we had more time, we could talk a little bit more. But we have very broad categories, just like plant life, very broad categories. Flying creatures, all of the varieties of birds. That was on day four. Swarming creatures, all kinds of creatures that swarm, both in water and on land. Now we have other broad categories, but they all reproduce only after their kind. So within those broad categories, you have many other kinds, more specific. They're not mentioned specifically, but you have mammals and reptiles on the same day. And here's our spaghetti again. You just can't harmonize it, so don't even try. In fact, evolution... It should not even be considered a theory. It's not even a hypothesis. It's a philosophy. And then we have man on day six as well. Now that fits the evolutionary scheme. But <laughs> And the beasts of the field are more, you know, cows, deer, wild animals, giraffes, hippopotamus. They're probably creepy, creeping. Yeah. Creeping, probably. Yeah, uh, these whole areas are areas where there's a lot of research that could be done. And you might come up with some insights that you can study biology and find reasons for some of the things that you're asking like that. Yep. Yeah, we just have kind of the broad outlines. We just have the foundations to all of these sciences. And by the way, for example, before day three, there is no botany because there are no plants. Before day four... Basically, no uh, astronomy because there are no planets, there's no stars, there's no galaxies. So you have the origin of these things. So in that, you have a lot of things going on there. And none of it is evolutionary. Mankind, some of the distinctions. We share some physical characteristics with the animal kingdom, but we are also distinct. We have an immaterial aspect. Now, you might argue that animals have nephesh, which is immaterial, some animating, living aspect to them. But we have a spirit that animals do not. We have a capacity to come up with ideas, thoughts, and communicate those. We have a rational capacity. We have a moral capacity. Animals do not. And we have a spiritual capacity, and we also are given a regal role, you might say. We have sovereignty. That's in Genesis 1. Day 6, fixity of kinds of other creatures, mammals and reptiles on the same day, contradicting evolution. We have the distinction of mankind, and we could go into detail. 
Let us make man after our likeness. We share some aspects of who God is. God has put within us something that resembles him, resembles himself. He spoke them and then he breathed into us. He did not breathe into him. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of distinctions. If we had more time, we could go into the detail. So clear distinction of mankind. We're not part of the animal kingdom. We're created in the image of God with particular characteristics that are distinct. We have the origin of anthropology, mankind. Before day six, no mankind, no anthropology. A very good creation, a completing of creation, which means that the first law of thermodynamics did not come into existence. That law did not exist until 131, verse, chapter 131, first law of thermodynamics. The creative process ended day six. Day seven, God rested. Not because he was exhausted after all creating all these stars. Stars were an afterthought. God doesn't get tired. He rested to set a pattern for Sabbath observance. We have a day of rest, two, one through three. And we could say that evolution is a failed idea. We have the origin of life. We have uh, a genetic code that is implied by the kinds. We have multicellular life. We don't have cellular life. We have sexuality in terms of, of all of the creatures, the animal creatures, as well as mankind. This is all produced. No transitional forms. No transitional forms. Uh, we have an explanation for the Cambrian explosion. It's not a Cambrian explosion at all. There's a different explanation. We talked about that on the flood. We have very complex organs. No simple life. There's no such thing as simple life. Remember we talked about that? We have irreducible complexity. Evolution fails on every single one of these. This is the emphasis of Genesis 1, when God creates all things. Here's Julian Huxley. He says, no one would bet on anything so impossible. They even admit that evolution is impossible and life is so impossible. No one would bet on anything so impossible happening, yet it happened. Evolution is true. It, I mean, it happened. <laughs> is that what's here? They can't Faith position. Remember what we said? Bailey says, yet for the Darwinian theory of evolution to be true, it has to account for the molecular structure of life, and it cannot. Genetics, microbiology, totally destroys evolution. And Behe goes on, it is, it is the purpose of this book to show that it does not. And that's Darwin's black box, I would recommend. Behe also says, the result of these cumulative efforts to investigate the cell, to investigate life at the molecular level, is a loud, clear, piercing cry of design. And if you have design, it requires a designer. And we came to this conclusion when we were talking about evolution versus creation. Ultimately, the Darwinian theory of evolution is no more nor less than the great cosmogenic myth of the 20th century. Michael Denton, a microbiologist that was at least, if not still, an evolutionist that writes the book Evolution in Crisis. He deals with the, the research and the book tells it all. Evolution is in crisis. This is the conclusion of his book. Pretty strong from an unbeliever. Sir Arthur Keith, evolution is unproved and unprovable. We believe it because the only alternative, 
This is insightful. The only alternative is special creation, and that's unthinkable. <laughs> so I won't think about it, so therefore it doesn't. <laughs> yep. And remember the slide I gave you? The only reason people hold evolution is not because of the evidence. There's no evidence. Superficial is because man will otherwise have to stand accountable before a holy God. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a scientific statement. And we can conclude with a couple of scriptures, Isaiah 43.1, But now, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. We belong to the creator of the universe. We can bow down and worship him. That's the last slide, by the way. We made it. (laughs) Want to close in prayer for us? Thank you, Father, for today and for the lesson. It helps me, Father, to at least understand far more about who you are. You have done for me. Thank you for the raise, taking the time. Go to all this. So, Father, just give you the thanks because of you that he does. I can't thank you. Amen. Yeah. Good. Which, did the cockroach come before or after? The what? The cockroach. <laughs> <laughs> it, it survived the flood. <laughs> okay, next week will be our last week, and I'm going to deal with the issue of is the universe billions of years or relatively young in the biblical time frame?